When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Okay, the beauty of the Yahoo Sports Hockey podcast that I have the opportunity to chat with specialists in the world of hockey. Folks that are so dialed into certain areas that they provide the sort of insight that I'm just not going to find anywhere else. For most guests, that means going really granular on one specific subject, but with my next guest, uh, there really are no such parameters. Mike McKenna is a recently retired NHL netminder with the sort of hockey resume that has provided a lifetime's worth of stories. He's also a podcaster, he's also a coach, and of course, he's a studio analyst with the Vegas Golden Knights. Mike, what's happening? I appreciate you uh, waking up early to join me today. Oh, I'm happy to be here, and I always appreciate a nice intro that you touched on a lot of things that have gone on in my life since retiring and trying to stay busy. And for a long time, especially during my career, when I was writing for InGoal Magazine or NHL.com and staying active in media while currently playing, I was a goalie guy. And so now I've had to expand my horizons and be able to, to describe and analyze everything I see in front of me uh, for the Golden Knights on air as a studio analyst, which is so much fun. Um, but a new challenge, which has been great. I've really enjoyed taking that role, um, doing other things, podcast, coach, all that stuff. So, um, yeah, I appreciate it. I, I, it's certainly flattering to be called something other than just, uh, hey, goalie guy Mike. So I appreciate it. <laughs> well, uh, not a problem, and I, I do appreciate you coming on. Uh, I do want to talk about the Golden Knights with you, um, obviously, but I do want to have, or while I have you, I want to get the chance to make you talk a little bit about yourself. So mention the hockey career off the top. It spanned two decades, included four years at St. Lawrence University, more than 500 minor league starts, Calder Cup finals on two occasions, and 35 games in the NHL, six seasons, seven different clubs. If you did have to describe your playing career using one word, uh, which one would you choose? Uh, journeyman is the obvious one because all the teams I played for, uh, you said seven NHL teams, which is who I played for. I dressed for nine. So it's, uh, it doesn't show up on the hockey database, but I actually dressed for, I think, 24 professional hockey teams. Wow. And I was only traded twice, claimed off waivers once. So all of those transactions were really going up and down between the minor league team and the American League and the big club, which is a compliment, I guess, in some ways. You know, they, I was wanted and had to battle for those chances. And that's, that's the word I would like the most is is battler you know I had to continually outplay my goalie partners which ironically were always my best friends on the team you know but you're fighting for for playing time you're fighting for your career and I knew I had to be top 10 in the American League if I wanted to keep getting jobs if and I was in the ECHL I had to be one of the best if I wanted any chance of going to the American League and beyond uh, and that propelled me you know I never wanted to fall behind the technical curve even today with what I'm doing 
whether it's coaching or analyzing, I need to be on top of things. You know, I want to know the latest in technique for goalies, for players. Uh, and I think that carried me, but just having that internal fire and competition and, and battling my way through things and, you know, not setting crazy goals. You know, I, I was very much an in the moment type of guy where, um, I, I didn't try to forecast my future by saying I need to be in the NHL by this point. It was just purely, all right, I made it to this level. What can I do next? You know, how can I make the most of this and, and try to move on? And if I do, that's great. If I don't, well, it's been a great ride. And, you know, after as long as time I spent playing the game, it, it was a great ride. Being in your position, it, it seems like there would be so many high stakes moments because you're getting this opportunity and you have to perform or you have to outplay, you know, this certain prospect that might have a little bit more juice behind them in terms of their organizational ranking. Um, so it led to a lot of pivotal moments, I would assume. Uh, but of those pivotal moments, is there a most rewarding moment that you took advantage of? Was it playing in that first NHL game that sort of validated everything that you were doing and working for? Or is there something from your minor league days that that stands out when you look back and reflect on your career now? Yeah, there's a lot. You know, I mean, I think every game is really just as important. I think that's one of the misnomers that we face so much in hockey is, oh, this is a big game. Well, no, it's not. It's not any more important than any other game. They're mm -hmm. all worth the same amount of points. You know, it's it's funny to hear people say that every single time. It's a big game. <laughs> well, if they're all big game, then they're all not a big game. Right. But uh, for me, like the, as far as the rewarding aspect, I can remember coming off the ice after my first game. It was in Long Island. I was playing with Tampa Bay and I'd signed my first NHL contract two days before. I'd never even done a training camp, you know, like a preseason game proper. And I got tossed in midway through. And I come off the ice. I didn't allow a goal and I think 11 shots in a period and a half. And I remember looking at my jersey and I took it off. And that was kind of the moment it hit me where it was like, I did it. Like I, I played in the NHL, you know, I couldn't believe it. Like I, I was from St. Louis. Nobody from our city had ever played in the NHL when I was a kid, you know, and now we've had more, there were more than two dozen St. Louis kids that have played at this point. But goalies, I mean, I was the first goalie ever drafted out of St. Louis, you know, and I didn't even sign with Nashville who drafted me. So mm -hmm. it was a pretty incredible road to do it. But my first win and shutout were the same night. It was a couple nights later in Tampa Bay. My parents were there. Um, it wasn't an entry level contract, so Tampa didn't fly them in. <laughs> they had, had to pick up the dime for that one. Um, <laughs> you know, my, my girlfriend, now wife, was there. And just coming off the ice and seeing them, my dad's there to give me a hug coming off like – Man, I can remember just happy crying that night. I couldn't believe it. And you think about all the people that have helped you and, and, you know, the family aspect, my grandpa who started hockey in St. Louis with a half dozen other people in the fifties, like, could he believe it if he were alive to see it? And um, those are huge, but I think really the most rewarding was probably going to game seven of the Calder cup finals in 2018, that series against the Marlies uh, when I was with the Texas stars was just it was an incredible run. I was playing the mm -hmm. best hockey of my life. Our team was just so close, so much fun. We're throwing huge barbecues after each round and playing sand volleyball and just great memories, man. Those three moments, my last game that I ever played, I knew it was probably going to be that. So my parents came and again, hug from my dad coming off the ice, wave to my kids in the stands, win the game. Like pretty amazing memories, man. I could go on and on, but I was really fortunate. Oh, that's the beauty of your career. I mean, is all these different, these things that stand out. I think I don't yeah. want to say that I have no experience and I, and I can't speak for any current NHLers, but when it is the same thing over and over again, and you're not fighting and scrapping and battling, as you mentioned, uh, maybe these things don't stand up, stand out as much as they do for you. 
Um, but anyone who has the hockey resume that you have, I- I'm always curious about what your basement or game room looks like. I mean, it does it tell the story of your professional career on the wall, or have you had to, you know, step back and say, okay, these are probably better better off tucked away in a closet somewhere. Well, they, it's ironic that it is a closet. It's literally the guest room closet is my me room because I don't want my whole house to be a shrine to myself yeah. and my career. You know, I mean, I've got my college degree sitting above me in the office. I'm happy to show that off. My wife's right next to it. We've got both of those from St. Lawrence University, which we're very proud of, which we've also hardly used at all, uh, my economics degree. But <laughs> my closet has all my jerseys that I have. You know, you're not always given a jersey by teams until this newest CBA that just kicked in. Now they give mm-hmm. the players a jersey. Well, in the past, that wasn't always the case. And, you know, I didn't finish my season in the NHL that often. And that's generally when you might get one. So a lot of my jerseys just went off into the unknown. And I've either had to trade or, or buy them back from collectors. My Vancouver Canucks jersey, it's missing. Uh, hmm. Have some leans where it may be, but uh, people aren't responding. I'd really, really like to get that because uh, it represents a really unique two days of my life. But uh, I have most of my jerseys. I have all my masks. And that's the coolest thing for a goaltender for keepsakes. You know, you look around the, the closet and it's just, I think it's 18 masks lining it, which is really cool. It that's tells awesome. a story. Uh, and I have a couple sets of gear that are hanging in the basement, just special ones, college, first NHL set. But I, I made a pretty concerted effort not to keep too much stuff because it just, it takes up space. It's really cool. Uh, but what kind of comes down to like, how much of this can you really keep, you know? So tried to try to minimize it as much so the house isn't crazy me. I do have a family and kids. Yeah. It does seem criminal though, that you weren't until this latest CBA that you weren't given a Jersey. If you were, you know, a one night only guy or, or your, your oh, day didn't last very long. It, yeah. it, it's uh, I mean, it's beyond cheap to be honest, but it's, it's, yeah. it's really strange. I mean, you sweat and you bleed for that Jersey, for that city, for that team, for that organization. And to not have been given a jersey at times, especially think about a guy who gets called up for two or three games. And that's all yeah. you get. Think about that. Like you work your entire life and you don't even get to keep your jersey. You know, that cost the team 250 bucks, maybe, maybe 200, what it is for retail cost on these. Um, that was always hard to take, you know, and I, I'm glad that's changed. I know they fought for it, but there are some funny things about hockey like that, you know, like, I can't even access the NHLPA website because I didn't play a hundred games as a goalie, you know? So like there's a tiered system to being an alumni with the NHLPA crazy, isn't it? You know? So yeah, um, it, it's amazing how special of a club it is to even play one game in the league. But you know, unless you were a full-time guy, hundred games, it's uh, it can be a little different, but regardless of all that, man, it's, it's still cool to be able to get those jerseys if you eventually do and take a look at them. Your professional career began in Las Vegas in 2005 with the Las Vegas Wranglers. Is it just a coincidence that you find yourself back in Vegas now covering the Golden Knights, or is there a little more to it than that? You know, when I went out and interviewed for the gig being an analyst, I thought, okay, I do have history here. So there's an awareness to the city, to to what's been there previously with the Thunder, then with the Wranglers, who I played with. Uh, but I, I think it was more so that I was recently out of the game and had built something of a brand for myself in media, even while playing by doing in, you know, just things like live tweeting games from my McKenna and game count or mm. talking to people online or writing, like I said, for NHL.com or writing for Ingle magazine, just staying active in these, in these forums that keep you out there. 
but I didn't know what I could do on TV. I didn't know that I could talk and analyze things in real time. That was new to me. Um, but I do think the Vegas aspect certainly helped, you know, like there are a lot of people in that city who have deep ties to hockey. You know, we drew 5,000 people a game to the ECHL and they're all Vegas Golden Knights fans. That's a fourth yeah. of the people that are sitting in T-Mobile, you know? So, um, it, it was really, really cool. I remember going for the interview and flying out the next day and thinking, man, this is where it all began. This is really cool. Um, and then sure enough, being offered the opportunity to come back, like pretty cool full circle moment. Another reality for guys who hang around in the minor leagues for quite a long time is that you're plotting or having to plot your post-playing career. And you might go through different machinations or iterations of that. So I'm wondering for you how many plans were in place over the years. Was it always media for you? Uh, Was it always something that resembled coverage of the Golden Knights? What were you trying to work towards? And what role did writing for NHL.com, writing for InGoal Magazine, starting a podcast, what role did all that play into where where you were eventually headed? Uh, that, that's a great question, because I think if you asked me this eight, 10 years ago, it would be very different than what it is today. You know, I, I always had an eye on media. You know, I, I would produce videos for the Peoria Riverman and from Windows Movie Maker and things I would do on a little Sony bloggy, you know, because we didn't have a PR mm-hmm. department. <laughs> so we'd go see the boys and girls, go to the boys and girls club, go to the Humane Society. I'd film it. I would do interviews and I would just put it all together. And it was more just a hobby for me, but I really enjoyed it. And I thought maybe I can leverage this someday. If I'm doing this stuff now, maybe it'll pay off. And it did, obviously. Um, but I always took interviews seriously. I took media seriously. You know, I didn't blow those off. I took every chance and um, writing for Ingle Magazine was a, a passion play. Like I love doing it. I love talking goalie, but it kept my writing skills up. You know, I was good at it at college. I knew I could do it. And then NHL.com asked me and I do it for them. And uh, it was definitely in the back of my head that maybe I could do this, but I didn't see an avenue for it actually happening. I don't think it was until at least two thirds of the way through my career where I started to get more NHL minutes, I started to be really a number three for people in organizations mm-hmm. that helped me. You know, it created my brand that was that was an NHL American League professional goaltender who has these experiences, which is unique. Not everybody does this while they're playing. Uh, and I think my last season where I kicked around five different teams, three NHL teams, I, I think that actually helped me. You know, my name was on the radar a little bit. Um, but I, I think that as far as the podcast, like, I wanted to start it the last year of my career. I was ready to go. I was recording my last year as early as November and I held on to those interviews, but I didn't like the optics of putting it out while I was playing. You know, I, I just felt like it wouldn't be accepted a lot around the league, which is silly. It should, hmm. it's, it's a hobby. It's something to keep your mind off of hockey, which is your day job, which will drive you insane if it's all you think about. Um, So I still had that old school hockey mentality, I guess, where I just didn't like the optics. I wanted to make sure people thought I was focused and I was, I just, I always had other things going on. So yes, I I do think eight, 10 years ago, I'm probably taking my econ degree and I'm somewhere in the business world or in money management. And, uh, but now as my career went on, it turned into, Hey, you've got a chance, leverage it, see where it goes. And here I am. You have lots of goalies on the podcast, Six Degrees with Mike McKenna. Um, but besides that, when when you are looking at, let's say you're dreaming of the perfect podcast guest, who who would that person be? Probably a hero of mine, you know, and I've had a lot of them on. You know, it's right. I, I think of the the people that I've asked to do the podcast that have said yes, which is almost everybody. And if anybody's 
nobody's really turned it down. It's always just been a matter of finding the right time to do so. You know, mm. when I, I mean, Greg Millen is the first goalie hero I had. I'm four years old watching the St. Louis Blues play. He catches with his right hand. I, I can't actually remember watching him play, but I know he was my first goalie hero. I've got a stick from him. I met him when I was probably four years old. My grandpa takes me down to the arena and meet him after a practice. I get a picture. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. With him. And I call Greg and he's like, absolutely, you know, and we've become friendly, friends with one another. And I just, I look at those moments from my childhood to what they've become now. I mean, I was teammates with Marty Brodeur, you know, <laughs> I, I was teammates with Roberto Luongo, right? Like I haven't had them on the podcast yet, but this is kind of what I'm leading to is that it's just, it's crazy to think about, but then the moment we do the podcast, it goes into goalie mode like that. And we just start two goalies talking, you know, mm -hmm. it's, and that's the best part is that we all speak the same language and whether it's Glenn Hall, who we've, I've done an interview with speaking about his experience from the sixties and seventies, or whether we're talking about a recently retired guy like a Peter Budai, we still speak the same language. We understand the struggles. And uh, that's just the coolest thing to me to be able to talk to, to other goalies like that and to branch out. You know, I've interviewed IndyCar drivers. I've interviewed a drummer. I've interviewed general managers, Ray Shiro, Ron Hextall. Um, it's, it's pretty amazing, man, that people will, will give me that time to, to do an interview. Well, you mentioned uh, being reluctant to put the podcast out while you were playing, and and I guess there's a, a bit of a reluctance amongst the player population to you know appear on podcasts or to really yeah. uh, you know bear all at a podcast or or really speak too much about themselves. So if you could, you know, eliminate that consideration for someone in the game today, who would you really like to talk about the profession with that's active and on the ice right now? Well, there's so many people that have a ton of insight to what's actually going on. They're very analytical. Uh, they think of it in a very different mindset than a lot of people. And um, you don't necessarily, you don't necessarily see it come through in their interviews. You know, I, and I think of like Jamie Ben to me is the most misunderstood guy in terms of media and perception at times. Like this is a guy who commands the room as a captain. Like I was in that locker room for two months in Dallas, month and a half in Dallas. And there was no question in my mind that this is the captain. This is who it should be. This is a guy who controls the room in the right way and his teammates respect and love. But for some reason within media, there was this echo chamber that he was just distant and didn't care. And I'm like, this is the perfect example of how the public has no idea who should really captain a team. And I really would love to see him give his full opinion, his full 
uh, personality at times, right? But he's reserved. That's not the way he leads. That's not the way he captains, right? Uh, he'd be yeah. fascinating to me to actually get in a laid back setting and really get him going because he's a really fun guy too, you know? <laughs> so um, that's one of them. I think Keith Yandel, every, I mean, I think everybody's <laughs> on to King Keith Yandel at this point. <laughs> yeah. But man, like talk about leaving an impression on you. There's a guy that is funnier than hell um, that, it, it's not just he's fun. Like this is a guy who's a damn good hockey player who really thinks the game well too. Like there's a whole lot going on there that I think people would uh, definitely appreciate, but you know, you get labeled something and that's it. He's the comedian. Well, no, he's mm. also putting up 60 points a year as a defenseman in the national. So maybe those two guys, those would be really good, uh, really good guests. Jamie Ben's interesting because um, I think that sort of misunderstanding of him maybe manifested itself a little bit when they were uh, eliminated, I guess, in the Stanley Cup final. I think it was, I guess it was game six against the Lightning. And he was showing his disappointment in a, in a way that we necessarily haven't seen from Jamie right. Benn. And it kind of took people a little bit by surprise or at least struck a lot of people. So uh, maybe that was the most real the media has seen of Jamie Benn. And, and you might be the perfect person uh, to, to strip it down a little bit more and, and get, you know, get to know who the real Jamie Benn is. I think that's a great idea. Um, so you do a lot of things, obviously. Podcast is probably one of the things you're most comfortable with. Uh, because you've been doing it for so long, doing it even before your playing career ended. Uh, but with the Vegas Golden Knights, you know, you're doing studio work. We've seen you do some stand-up, some on-cam interview stuff as well. You mentioned doing it way back when, when there was no PR department yeah. in the minor <laughs> leagues. But so you got, you've got some obvious experience here, but there are, you know, parts of the job are more challenging than others and more maybe uh, you're, you're, you have to deal with a little bit differently. So what does come most natural to you in your now post-playing career uh what are you most comfortable with and, and what parts of the job continue to be a challenge for you yeah i think the easiest thing is just like this i can be the interviewee all day long you know you ask me questions and i can run and talk way too much and go in different directions and not get focused i'm good at that uh, i think the hardest thing for me is trying to flip the script and and really just be concise and get my point across in a short manner and yeah. do it the right way on air because like when you're on TV and you start this analyst role, it's like you don't get a lot of help to start. And I don't mean that in a negative light to anybody in that they're not giving you support. They are, but it's not like you go to school, right? It's not like I could go to a three-month deep dive on how to be a broadcaster for hockey. It doesn't right. happen. It's basically you go up there on stage and you're like, here you go. And so um, like learning the intricacies of it to make me feel comfortable. I know what I'm talking about. I, I have the knowledge of that. I have the insight. I have the experience to be able to convey those points. But what I didn't necessarily have was the comfortability of being someone who's really just projecting us that air of confidence on TV because I didn't know the actual working background to it, right? The camera looks, how to interact with my, with my host, with people on air. Uh, that stuff was all new. So it was like learning the technical foundation of goaltending for broadcasting right and mm. you're doing it on the fly on air on the national stage so um you know it was hard at first but man it was rewarding to get it you know i watch clips now and i'm like hey like i should be confident like i'm actually okay at this right <laughs> and i know it's a work in progress um so that was really just getting me to feel comfortable so that my personality could come out without me feeling like i was forcing anything you know like podcasting to me isn't hard i'm just asking questions with friends if i have my homework laid out like you do the questions kind of ask themselves, 
you know, yeah. but, but really just finding that comfortability uh, to be on air, to project myself in a comfortable way that's, that's confident and, and makes sense and is concise and short and in and out on answers on time is a challenge. So in Vegas, you got Lawless, Millard, 90, 90. Uh, Vegas has become this destination for players, yeah. but it looks like it's becoming a destination for broadcasters as well. Uh, is the situation as desirable as it appears for members of the media working for the Vegas Golden Knights? Well, I think if you ask anybody of that Manitoba breath and that you just mentioned, I think <laughs> that they'll take Vegas over the, the cold of Manitoba yeah. any day. Now, now that now that's not slagging on Manitoba. They love their roots and they have very strong feelings and ties to that area. And I understand it for sure. Uh, but I do think that, I mean, that January in Vegas is pretty attracting, attractive to people. And yeah. it's not just that though, you know, you're not just talking about the weather. Like you want to be with an organization that one has a chance to win two treats people the right way. Three does everything to support you, you know, and it, it is unique for broadcasters in Vegas in that we're team employees. That's not always the case for, uh, for people that are on TV. A lot of times those are, hires of the local TV affiliate or whoever has the rights, you know? Mm -hmm. And so for us being team employees, it also affords us a chance to do other things within the team setting uh, around the city. It's, it's desirable for sure. I mean, it's a reason why you know, pretty heavy hitters have shown up, right? Like there's a lot of experience on our broadcast team. I, I'd argue as much as anywhere. And um, Dave Gosher, our play-by-play guys with the Bruins for a long time comes to Vegas and just listening to Dave Gosher and Shane Knighty, during games is just an absolute treat. Those guys are so good at what they do and to be able to riff on them and learn from them and lean on them. Really, really cool. It's uh, I mean, for someone who's dealing with, uh, you know, snow outside right now, it does uh, January in Vegas does sound pretty good. Okay. Let's get into VGK. Uh, it didn't quite go to plan for both the golden Knights and the NHL, I guess. Uh, but Vegas is coming off its first outdoor game appearance. One that took 10 hours to complete. But what does it say about the Golden Knights, the strength and rise and the footprint of this organization that made it so NBC was just itching to showcase this team so quickly? Well, a couple of things. The biggest one to me is that look at the ratings in Vegas and in that market. And anytime they're on TV, they're huge. And there's a lot of people that look at Vegas and go, who are they going to draw on TV? Well, you know what? It's it's a funny phenomenon. We use it all the time in our own terminology of Vegas worldwide, the VGK worldwide, that it's true. Like people around the world have latched onto this team. It happens with expansion clubs at times, but I think because Vegas was something new and different, there were, especially kids, like kids will latch onto a new product anytime, right? They get a new mm -hmm. LOL doll or they get a new like, you know, Tonka truck or whatever. It's like the new one on the market. The kid loves it the most. Well, there's a new Jersey on the market right? It's a VGK jersey. Kid wants the jersey, suddenly they're a VGK fan. VGK games do really well. They do well on ratings. There's fans everywhere. It's a growing brand. It's it's a hot brand. The team's been good and the team's built to win. They're entertaining games. Like you don't want to put a dud on the ice on a national scale if you can avoid it. Mm -hmm. And Colorado, Vegas, let's face it, those are the two heavyweights in the West right now. I mean, there's no other, there's you know, St. Louis treading water, right? Like Minnesota, Ah, maybe they got it, but Colorado and Vegas, man, Honda West, those are your teams. So putting them on the big scale in a place like Tahoe, incredible, right? It's a home run to do so. I know we had uh, the delay, but man, sometimes you got to swing for the fences and putting those two teams out there. I thought was, 
I thought it was magic, man. Like, it, who cares if it took a little while to get it done? It did get done, and the visuals and, and just the opportunity for it was was really cool to grow the game. Just the beginning, obviously, for Vegas in those showcase moments, but hopefully just the beginning for the NHL in a scenario like that. I know it didn't go exactly to plan, but I think that was almost, you know, that that was the ideal. I think they captured the essence with that, and yeah. I think we should see more of that moving forward. But the Lake Tahoe showcase was part of a four-game set uh, for Vegas versus the Colorado Avalanche, which which, in, which concluded, rather, uh, Monday night. An impressive victory uh, to split the series at two. I mean, you mentioned those two teams being the heavyweights uh, and, and Vegas is more formidable challenger when talking about getting to the conference, or I guess it wouldn't be conference, it would be the league semifinals this yeah. year. Um, so what is the mood after four? Uh, you, you don't want to call the measuring stick games, but what have we learned from these four games versus such a formidable opponent? And, and is Vegas feeling better, worse, or the same about the prospects moving forward now that we've seen this sample play out? I think we saw that the two teams are getting to the point where they were sick of playing against each other and it started to boil over at the end of the game. You know, the yeah. last 10 minutes, there was some real nastiness and you don't see that a lot in the NHL anymore. <laughs> like the game is not very aggressive that often until you get teams that really feel engaged. And both of these teams do, you know, you've got Matt Calvert and Ryan Reeves jousting at center ice, Philip Grubauer's going after Will Carrier at the end of the game. I love it. Like I love seeing a goalie get angry enough to get his get his gloves moving, you know. And but that just that speaks to the rivalry. Like as a player, that's what you want. You, as much as you look at those games and go, "Man, this is going to be a war tonight," you you love it. You crave it. You want that engagement. You know, you don't want the Friday night where you're, "Oh, who are we playing? Oh, this team's second to last." Like, no, you want the best. And I think you saw that come out. Both teams played really good hockey during stretches of that four game series. I think you're really seeing how much special teams are going to play a difference. So, I mean, the penalty kill for Colorado is just unbelievable. I mean, I think last mm -hmm. going into last night, 34 for 35 recently, Vegas could not get anything going except on the rush on the power play, you know, and that's where Vegas is going to need more is in zone ability on the power play. Uh, and you can't give momentum to Colorado. Even if Colorado doesn't score on their power play, it seems to really put the other team on their heels. When McKinnon gets the puck and he gets in zone, he starts wearing out your defensemen, throwing off your lines, it makes life harder. So uh, five on five, these two teams are going back and forth, entertaining as can be, but I felt like the special teams aspect of it, again, not strictly looking at goals for and against, but just the amount of momentum shifts and, and the the time on ice really made this interesting. And Marc-Andre Fleury was just spectacular. And Philip Grubauer early in the series too, two really good goaltenders, but ultimately like you got to give Fleury the edge with a couple of those shutout games. And last night, just incredibly fun to watch. I want to get to Fleury in a moment, but uh, I, I do want to touch on, uh, you know, how Vegas got to the point where they split with Colorado. Obviously, it was a very, very, very good record uh, and still is after the four game set with Colorado. But it wasn't exactly smooth sailing. I mean, we had COVID-19 issues. At times, they were forced to roll with five defenders as they sort of juggled the, the, the uh, limitations on the salary cap. What was the key to getting off to such a tremendous start and overcoming the issues that did sort of plague them? Well, not, not necessarily plague them, but they did have to address, I guess, in the early going of the year. Well, it was certainly unique. I mean, 13 forwards and 5D, that's, that's not ideal. It puts a big load on your defense. It's taxing. It's not easy for, you know, Alex Petrangelo to come in. He's playing massive minutes right away in a new system. 
Um, but you've also got Shea Theodore to foil you, who's one of the top D in the league at this point, I find. But I, I think for the Golden Knights, it really was just a continuation of their play in the bubble. I know they didn't get what they wanted to, eventually losing out to Dallas uh, and playing some hard games against Vancouver, but they were playing so well there uh, that they kind of stuck with it and kept it going. And it's the depth of the team. You know, they're getting scoring throughout the lineup, first three lines, defense. Uh, you look at some defensive units in the NHL and they're a black hole after the first defenseman or two, you know, and Vegas is now getting it from three or four defensemen, five defensemen are producing. And a lot of that has been Pete DeBoer's system, activating the defense, making sure that the Golden Knights get the puck to the forwards as quick as they can, get through the neutral zone in a hurry, attack the net. Um, that's all made a difference. They're playing really fast. They have since the start. And any sloppiness that was there from not having the preseason games was overcome by the skill level. Like this is just a really deep team and it's like Colorado. Uh, it's like Boston. It's like Phil. It's any of those teams you wanted to name top to bottom on the roster. There's not many holes. Uh, and the center ice position people had questioned about with Smith Vegas has been filled pretty well by, you know, Cody glass has done well. And um, so they're, they're rolling, but I think, you know, skill level system depth, it all plays into it. Certainly not a hole at the backup goaltender position. Obviously, there was a ton of debate around the goaltending position uh, with Robin Leonard re-signing and about $12 million devoted to the position. And that's, you know, as much of a reason as anything that they had to roll with five defensemen early in the year because so much money was tied up at that position. But it has proven to be a good thing that he wasn't shipped out just because of Leonard's emergence, because Leonard has been out of the lineup and Fleury has been playing at a Vesna caliber level. Uh, is this just more proof that he remains sort of an indispensable element for this team, a piece to the puzzle, even with salary cap issues? Uh, and does his performance of late change anything about the plans moving forward? I don't know what's going to happen moving forward, to be honest with you. I can't predict that at all. It is a lot of money tied up, but man, I, I don't know how you can move on from a guy who's the backbone of your team at this and is proving it yet again and playing at this level is what it comes down to. Uh, he has been incredible to watch and and he's made adjustments you know he's 36 years old but he's always had the willingness to listen to people to make adjustments when necessary to improve his game we've seen that he's a little closer at home he's playing between his posts more often he's not chasing the game as much that leads to better rebound control it leads to less scrambling uh, which of course you know as a highlight real saves are always what we see where he is having mm -hmm. to scramble but that that doesn't show all the work he's done before that to be in position uh, that he's done a better job with this year, but you know, 12 million bucks. Yeah. You can look at it as a number, but there's this giant boogeyman out there. Like, Oh, you can't spend more than 10 mil on goalies. Why? Why? You can't win. A, you can't win a Stanley cup without goaltending. Goaltending is the most important position. Goaltending is your most important penalty killer goaltending. Go and then nobody wants to pay for goaltending. Mm -hmm. You know, I, that's always been mind blowing to me. Uh, so I don't know going forward if this is the right setup or not, but I look even at Montreal in the same way, how Jake Allen's been great for Carey Price. Uh, I think it's real and I think that they can manage it, but Fleury has been, he's been the backbone and the heartbeat of this team since its inception and it's continued this year. Uh, and I, I can't imagine that stopping anytime soon. And you mentioned the importance of goaltending. I mean, that might be the reason why losing Philip Grubauer, the Colorado Avalanche last year in the playoffs, that might be the only reason why they didn't, didn't go yeah. as far as well, they perhaps should have. And I'll, I'll toss this too. Pavel Francouz, I like a lot. I think he's a really good goaltender, but he was hurt as well. You know, yeah. so you just, it's, it's tough when you lose those two guys in a big hurry. 
I like how you mentioned Flurry making changes to his game because, as a quick aside here, I think Flurry is one of the more entertaining, probably the most entertaining netminer to watch. And I guess maybe that is we're just seeing those highlights sometimes, but even just watching him play full 60 minutes, very entertaining goalie. But for someone who teaches the position or advises on the position, is entertainment value generally a detriment to a netminder's game? And, and would Flurry be considered an exception to that? In some ways. I mean, you, you don't want to have too many exciting saves because it means you're out of position. But in yeah. Marc-Andre Fleury's case, especially this season, those desperation, diving, lunging, explosive saves have been born of, of necess- necessity, right? It, it's when you see somebody as a goaltender do something that you don't have to. Like, just because you can do the splits doesn't mean you should do them. It means you can't right. recover. It means you're lunging. It means you're not pulling your back leg. It means you're exposing the top of the net. Uh, and quite frankly, I think that's why you've seen Jonathan Quick's numbers go like this, because he hasn't adapted the same way like a Marc-Andre Fleury has, that he's staying more upright, torso up, reading shots, not relying on being down on your knees as much, staying on your edges and being as patient as you can. So it, it's it's interesting with Fleury because we do see those saves. But I think that when you make a 40 saves, when you have 34 saves in a game and it's a shutout, you're going to have those, right? Mm-hmm. And I think he made probably two saves last night that shouldn't have been saved and he made it. And that's the difference. So uh, from a technical standpoint, last season, there were things I saw with him that I didn't like. I thought that he was chasing. I thought he was making the game hard on himself, setting his feet a foot outside the crease. Now he's reined it back a little bit. He's playing with a little flow, a little more patience. He's allowing himself to react to pucks, which is his strength. He's one of the greatest reactionary goaltenders to ever play the game. Give yourself that chance a little deeper, use your hands, but let pucks hit your chest. That's what we're seeing with Mark Andre. Alex Petrangelo was the biggest free agent acquisition and a guy that Kelly McCrimmon moved mountains, maybe not Lake Tahoe mountains, but mountains nonetheless to, to acquire uh, on the open market. How would you grade his transition so far to Vegas? And how much stronger is the Golden Knights defense under this reorganization? I think the defense is stronger. I think that's the, the most important thing. If you're looking at it, from 10,000 feet, it's a net win right now. I don't think we've seen the best of Alex Petrangelo. Uh, he's been fine. He's been a good NHL defenseman. But what you saw with the St. Louis Blues was he was the guy. He was a guy with the puck on his stick. He was over the boards in every instance. And he's still doing that for the Golden Knights, but he's not driving offensive chances like he did with St. Louis. Like he was a one-man breakout with St. Louis. Things are different with Vegas. Now it's about getting the puck to the forwards quicker, joining the rush, being the late man. He's got a good feel for that. But I think that for him, especially not having the exhibition games to get used to the new system was a challenge. You know, he'd never played in any other organization, right? He's had different coaches, but never another organization. So I I think he's still finding his way. I think him going into COVID protocol didn't help uh, in terms of on ice. You know, it gives you a chance to to visually see things. Um, But his offensive production isn't quite, I think, where anybody expects it just yet. Um, but I do, I would encourage patience there for sure, because players that are that good generally figure it out and he's got support around him with Vegas to make that happen. What I find interesting about Vegas is that its biggest stars are perhaps known for defensive abilities. First, Mark Andre Fleury, Robin Leonard, Mark Stone, obviously yeah. a great forward, but known as maybe the best defensive forward in hockey, Petrangelo, Theodore might be their best two players. Uh, these are real game changers on the team and they're, they're all, you know, under that sort of category of their strength is their ability to deny the opposition. Obviously there is offensive upside with each. Um, 
But I think with uh, you know all that talent in that vein, that it might leave something to be desired from an offensive standpoint. And I think we saw that in the playoffs where they had a very difficult time scoring. Now they got Chandler Stevenson as their number one center, and he was a guy was a tremendous ad, maybe one of the best deadline acquisitions last year. But a number one center, I'm not sure. So do the Golden Knights, in your opinion, have enough firepower? two score goals. I think they're a middling team right now and and that's okay. It's it's very early on in the season, but when it comes down to it, when it's when it when it gets a little bit more difficult to score, are the Golden Knights set up to score enough to compete, I guess, with the Colorado Avalanche? Well, I think it just comes down to execution and it comes down to your system to make that happen. Do they have the firepower? Sure. I mean, Max Pacioretty's been trending towards career totals on goals and I know that's just one player. <laughs> Um, mm-hmm. But you look at what him and Stone do together is is pretty amazing. Now, they threw the lines in a blender last night. Uh, yep. Vegas did. They're all over. Uh, I suspect that that's Pete DeBoer throwing a different look at the Colorado Avalanche and, and shaking his players up a little bit to see what works. You never know unless you try it. Um, but I do think, like, it, what Vegas ran into last year was that they were just trying to funnel pucks to the net. And the refrain was, okay, yep, we need bodies at the net and traffic, bodies at the net and traffic. And You know, five years ago, that was the game was nothing but deflected shots, screenshots, and uh, they weren't getting a lot through the middle. They weren't making seam passes. They weren't changing angles, doing high tip plays, creating chaos that way rather than just physical bodies. And I think I've seen more of that this year. They've tried different looks in zone on the power play, hanging onto the puck a little bit longer rather than just shot volume. And I do think there's a very fine line there. Like there is a correlation to the number of shots you get on net and winning but you don't want to just put floaters there and hope there has to be a purpose to it. So there's a fine line, but I think this season, especially to me, they've done a better job of that. And really like they've, they haven't fallen out of games. Like when things get tough, they've always had a response. And to me, that's the mark of a really good team. Yeah. Colorado can score, but I I think these two teams are so closely matched. It's man. It's fun hockey to watch. I'll tell you that. And I, I, I don't know really which team by the end of the year is going to be the best. It may just come down to who's got healthy bodies. One of the crazier things for me when looking uh, at the team that went to the Stanley cup final in its first year, uh, it's almost non-existent now with the exception of one line. And I know the lines went into a blender last night, but William Carlson, Jonathan Marcheseau and Riley Smith, they've sort of remained as this one uh, you know, center block or centerpiece that has not changed and has achieved longevity. So how have they achieved that longevity? What separates them? What makes them different? And what do they mean to this franchise big picture from more of a legacy standpoint? And in addition to uh, what they mean for the success this year and moving forward? The original misfits. Uh, yeah. It's interesting with that line. And, and again, they, they were split up last night. Last year, Carlson went up and played between Pacioretty and Stone for a decent amount as well. Mm-hmm. But to me, they're kind of like the rock. They're old faithful. Marsh, so Smith, Carlson. Uh, Pete DeBoer knows what he's getting with them. And there's been nights this year where they've been the best line. Um, generally on a line, you look for one player to really drive the boat. And with them, I don't think that's the case. You know, Will Carlson's so heady. He's a great 200-foot player. And Riley Smith's the same way. He compliments him very well. Um, that first year for Carlson where he couldn't miss the net on anything, and he scored at like a 25% clip, probably not going to see that again. But his strength is really, you know, what he does in the defensive zone on kills as well as as offensively. And Jonathan Marcheseau always says that playing with them just makes the game easy. He's like, I just have to go out there and they give me the puck, you know. (laughs) And it's they're at the point where they know where each other's going enough that they can make semi- 
you know, questionable plays happen because they have that knowledge of where the other person is, right? It's, they can be a little optimistic at times. One, because they trust where they're going to be, but two, they also trust the defensive game of one another, that even if they go for something that doesn't pan out, they'll be able to get back and cover for it. So, you know, Carlson's got good speed. Smith is just an incredibly intelligent player. And I mean, Marcia so just wants to shoot. It's all he wants to do. Give him the puck, let him shoot. So uh, they're, they're a nice trio. I like them together. Knowing what we know now about this team, uh, is there an obvious improvement that could be made before the deadline to better equip this team uh, for the postseason and for making the run towards the Stanley Cup, which is every expectation in Vegas right now? Well, if this was last year, I think it was pretty easy. They needed a right shot defenseman. They needed it all season last year. Uh, Shea Theodore was getting worked hard. Uh, They got Alec Martinez, who is a left shot. Uh, but he was a great player with Theodore. But what happened last year is Zach Whitecloud came into the mix. He elevated mm-hmm. himself to an NHL defenseman. So it came from within. This year they go out, they get Alex Petrangelo, and now Dylan Coglin has also come into the lineup. Three right-handed defensemen. I think they're good on the back end. Uh, Nick Hague's emerged. They've got depth coming from within, which is great. Center ice is still the question, right? You're still looking for centermen that can drip, that can really drive that third line They've tried different people. Nick Waugh's been there. Keegan Colasar's been there. Cody Glass has been there. I think Glass is probably who you're looking at as being the person to fill that role and grow further. I mean, this is a first-round pick, early first-rounder, great skill level that they believe in. You know, you're looking for him to eventually be first, second line, right? So I'm not sure at this point uh, that the depth is where they would like it to be for center, but I think you have people growing into that role. So by the end of the season, will they be there? That's the hope. Uh, do they have to do something at the deadline? Who knows? Because I think, again, the hope is to really expect these young players like Glass, um, even Stevenson, to continue to grow and elevate their game. Three quick ones before I let you go. The best netminder in the NHL today is who? I think it's Andre Vasilevsky. I, I just... From a technical standpoint, from a battling standpoint, from an athleticism standpoint, from a statistical standpoint, his gold save above average is top of the list. I mean, it's not just that Tampa's that good. I think Vasilevsky's the the benchmark for everybody. And we're spending money on. Uh, The best addition to the Golden Knights, uh, new sartorial selection, we'll call it. Uh, They got the gold jerseys, they got the gold helmets, and they got the reverse retro fits. Which of the three is your favorite? Reverse retro, man. I'm an old Las Vegas (laughs) Wrangler. I wore the red jersey in Vegas, and I think those jerseys are sharp, they're unique, the colors work, and they're flying off the shelves. So yeah, I'm reverse retro. Team Team reverse retro all the way. There you go. Okay, and if the border ever allows me to cross into the United States again, I need some food recommendations for the Strip. What's your favorite restaurant in Vegas right now? Uh, It's actually off the strip. Okay. It's called black sheep and chef Jamie Tran is going to be on top chef in America. uh, This coming season it's in Portland. I think they shot it in Portland, Oregon uh, over the summer, I guess. She is unbelievably talented. uh, And that kitchen does no wrong. Tiny little place. There's so many good places on the strip. Uh, A lot of, you know, celebrity chefs that you can kind of throw the dart at the board and have a good meal. You're, it's tough to miss in Vegas, uh, but if you're willing to venture out a little bit on the west side of town, I would I would definitely recommend Black Sheep. I've never had a bad meal there. I've, everything's always been incredible. There you go. A food recommendation and a show recommendation with Top Chef coming soon. Uh, uh, Mike, I, I really appreciate it. I appreciate you uh, uh, going through those technical difficulties with us and getting through it. Um, 
It was a fun conversation. I appreciate the insight and uh, keep up the great work you're doing with Vegas and beyond. Thanks, Justin, man. Anytime. I appreciate it. Fun talking hockey. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 